Just a heads up, in this episode, one of the people we speak with tells us about an experience of sexual assault. Everyone grab a sign. We're getting ready to go now. What do we want? I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Episode 35, On the Clock. A bunch of activists I know have been having this argument going back to the 1980s, probably way before that. There are two camps. Both of them agree that the world is fucked, but they disagree about how to unfuck it. The first idea is reform. The reformers argue that sweeping revolutionary change is impossible and even undesirable. So we ought to fight for moderate incremental changes. It's the best we can do. Slow and steady wins the race. So they say. Then there's the second idea, revolution. The revolutionaries argue that incremental reforms are a trap, crumbs offered by governments who just want to keep everything the same. So we must reject reforms and fight for the big systemic changes, they say. But as a lifelong organizer, I'm pretty sure it's both. Revolutionaries make great reformers because we fight for every inch. We never give up. Even when we win those inches, we keep going. But there is a tension between these two poles and it can be hard to live in this seeming contradiction. It can be hard to celebrate those incremental wins. Take the decriminalization of drugs. We're standing on the verge of a major change in BC or what appears to be a major change. For the first time in over a hundred years, it won't be illegal to be in possession of small amounts of drugs. But most of the activists I know aren't exactly celebrating. We're bracing ourselves for how little this might accomplish. We're aware of how puny the threshold amounts are and how adamant the government seems to be about going after dealers. We wonder if the cops really do crack down hard on dealers could this actually lead to more deaths? It's a strange place to be in, but I know we're not the first struggle to face this kind of uncertainty. The people who fought for the decriminalization of sex work in Canada know it all too well. And that's what I want to talk about on today's show. It's Tuesday, October the 4th, and I'm standing on the street with Crackdown producer Alex DeBoer. The sounds of traffic and industrial noise are coming from every direction. We're here to meet one of the participants in a local study about sex work. The best place we can find to talk is a harm reduction room in her building. And we're told that nobody will bother us in here. I was thinking about that one anyway. 
but you know that it's a room that nobody uses. Yeah. A room that nobody uses sounds perfect, to be honest. Is there like a name that we should call you for the recording? Um, probably Jade. Okay. Jade. Yeah. That's nice. Jade's in her mid-twenties. She says she doesn't love her current housing for a few reasons. There's too many rules and the water pressure is really weak. So she tries to get outside whenever she can. Um, I like going mushroom uh, picking during the fall season, which should be about now. Um, like, uh, where do you go to do that? Um, well, usually city parks, um, but the, uh, the species that we usually have gone for was like, um, they're like psilocyanescens. Jade tells me that she grew up in a tree-lined middle-class neighborhood on the west side of Vancouver. When she was 15, Jade started doing drugs. Nothing too serious at first, just like weed or whatever. But Jade says that her and her friends were broke, and they're willing to do some pretty risky things to get money. It would be us, like me and a couple of friends, um, kind of searching our rooms. Some of them would be kind of like uh, stealing stuff from their parents to kind of sell as merch. But uh, also, like high school gym change rooms, we'd be kind of like going in there during another class, and like half the lockers would be unlocked and like taking people's phones and stuff. But I got uh, cocky and did it, I think, like, three times. And on the third time, they must have installed a camera or something because they went right to my classroom and pulled me out. And I tried to leave my bag, and they were like, bring your bag. And uh, the VP and the principal both, like, brought me up, and, like, they knew. And, like, I was also just, like, high on weed, so, like... That made uh, getting caught even worse because I kind of like wasn't smart enough to really defend myself or like lie my way out of it. Jade left the principal's office feeling like her life was over. They were gonna call the cops. Her parents were gonna find out and she'd be fucked. So she took off, hiding out with a friend instead of going home. Um, and that was actually the very first time I used, like, hard drugs because, um, I had this feeling of, like, fuck it, we're on the run kind of thing, and we just ha- uh, my friend just happened to have someone that was, like, um, like, asking if we wanted to try it kind of thing, so it was something that, like, I might not have otherwise made the decision if I wasn't in that mindset. That's the first time you tried side? Yeah. Yeah. And then it became, like down with the little bit of side in it, and then more exclusively down. Mm-hmm. About a decade ago, when Jade was around 16, she started going to the downtown east side. She'd sell things to make money, and then she'd score some down. And that put her in some pretty uncomfortable positions. There were some things like jewelry and stuff that I really regret selling that like from my house, mm-hmm. um, like my room that was like rings and like, like the people, I guess how young we were too, like the people on the block, like we'd get like sh- really shitty prices for right, them. Right, right. They think you're dumb kids so they could rip you off. Yeah. One of Jade's biggest regrets was selling a family heirloom, a ring. 
She brought it to her usual guy on the block, and he gave her a few bucks for it. But then he told her if she wanted to make some real money, she should do sex work instead. He offered her $100 to have sex. She agreed. But as they were doing it, Jade says the guy suddenly stopped. He told her that he felt guilty because it didn't seem like she was enjoying it. He gave her 40 bucks for her time, less than half of what was promised. She told him, no, let's go back upstairs and finish the date. I want to get paid in full. In the end, she got about 60 bucks plus a pack of Belmonts. I've been there too. When I was younger and wired to black tar heroin in San Francisco, I started doing the odd date for cash or drugs, mostly when I was dope sick and out of options. It was never really my main gig though. I'm sure it wasn't an easy decision for Jade, but I know what she means when she says that doing sex work felt way less shitty than selling the ring. She didn't have to fuck anybody over to get what she needed. So Jade decided to do more dates her preference was to try and meet guys online, but she learned that those guys could be kind of particular. There was one time where I was living in like a different social housing um, and it wasn't in the downtown east side. I told them it was a nice building, but I had to explain the ID policy. And the guy goes like, oh, it's not a building full of junkies, is it? And I didn't know what to say at first, so I was kind of just like, uh, like, there might be some, but, like, I don't know. And then just the way his voice was, like, I was, I was worried that if he saw my track marks or anything like that, that he'd flip out on me for kind of, like, lying. So over text, I just said, like, I'm in recovery, like, if you don't want to, like, do it, that's fine. So he, he didn't come, even though before that, he'd be, he was like, I'll be there in 20 minutes. And so, Jade mostly did street-based sex work, where, she says, the clients often assume you'll have track marks. This usually involves work in the stroll. That's basically a stretch of road where sex workers hang out and wait for clients. At first, Jade didn't know about it. She spent time on Hastings Street, wandering up and down the block, asking random people if they wanted to go on a date. After a while, she learned about an established stroll on Cordova Street. On Cordova, clients drive right up and roll down the window. Jade would lean into the car and start a conversation. Ideally, like you wanna like set your boundaries and rates before you even get in. What I would do would be like, how much are you willing to pay? Uh, how long do you usually take? And then it would be internally like versus how much I need the money. to a client or a potential client how do you tell how do you vet them like how do you decide okay I'm gonna get in the car uh sometimes there's numerous factors like like uh their demeanor um like asking about the time because like sometimes uh I've had the response of like oh it depends on how good you are then that's an immediate like they're not respecting me kind of thing Jade soon learns that working a stroll like this can be really dangerous. Ideally, Jade would like to talk to potential clients for a bit, get their vibe, contemplate. But everything is happening right out in the open, and this is all illegal. And so the client wants to move fast, get Jade in the car, and peel out of there. 
It's like there's this ominous ticking clock, that second hand putting pressure on every interaction. This is a major reason why sex workers, and in particular indigenous sex workers, face disproportionately high rates of assault, sexual violence, and murder in Canada. The clock lets predators thrive. And so Jade learned ways of protecting herself. She checks social media posts for bad date reports to watch out for the most notoriously shitty clients. And when she gets a bad feeling, she listens to her gut and she takes other precautions too. I always like, well, I at least try to get like the plate beforehand or uh, something that I discovered is right before the date, I'll say I have to go pee and then I'll go behind their car and then I'm right behind where the plate is so I can get that. But um, even if I don't or I forget, um, I'll text a friend and just tell her like, hey, I'm like doing this right now. I've even sent her like uh, Google like maps, like screenshot of like where we pulled over. Even with these techniques, Jade's had some very close calls. One time a guy picked her up and something just felt off. Then click, the child safety lock snapped on. Jade told him to pull over. He tried to convince her to go through with a date, but eventually Jade persuaded him to let her go. This kind of thing isn't inevitable. Sex work doesn't have to be so dangerous, but as long as buying and selling sex is illegal, that clock keeps ticking away. The prohibition of sex work also makes it very difficult to do sex work in established indoor locations, which can be easily targeted by police raids. Researchers have found that sex workers who work outdoors have less control when negotiating terms with clients, including making sure clients wear condoms respect boundaries, and pay fair rates. That's why, back in December 2013, we were hopeful. Because it looked like all of this was finally going to change. Cheers erupt from the Supreme Court as sex workers learn of the historic decision. Hugs follow as they relish the end of a long legal battle. Wow! Yes! Great day for Canada! Canadian women from coast to coast. I've tried to watch the evolution of law and criminalization of sex work for a long time because when I was in my early 20s, I did sex work, uh, you know, mostly in order to keep my habit going. Like uh, I've been a daily opioid user for my whole adult life. And, uh, you know, so I, I and I, I saw how criminalization um, in a really granular way changed everything about that form of work. Um, and so in 2013, uh, there was this kind of moment of hope. Yes. I mean, I absolutely remember that day in December 2013 when the Supreme Court decision came down. This is Andrea Crusi. She's a professor at the University of British Columbia in the Department of Medicine, and she's been researching sex work for nearly 15 years. Jade is a participant in one of Andrea's ongoing studies. Honestly, that was a glorious day. Um, for sex workers' rights, for sex worker activism, and I still get goosebumps thinking about that day. Where were you? I was on mat leave. I was at home. My mom was visiting from Switzerland, and I was downstairs because my mom was sleeping in our bedroom. <laughs> and I was downstairs, and I checked my phone. I got the news, and I was going through it, and there was so many texts coming in. After a long legal battle led by sex workers Terry Jean Bedford, Amy Leibovich, and Valerie Scott, 
the Supreme Court of Canada struck down Canada's three core sex work laws. These were, one, keeping or being found in a body house, two, living on the avails of prostitution, and three, communicating in public for the purpose of prostitution. The court determined that these three laws imposed dangerous conditions on sex workers and violated Section 7 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms the right to security of the person. In a unanimous ruling, all nine justices agreed with a lower court saying banning brothels exposed sex workers to added danger by forcing them onto the streets. And the court found the law prevented prostitutes from working safely, an argument underscored by the serial killings of dozens of BC sex workers carried out by Robert Picton. This is an unbelievably important day uh, in terms of the sex workers' rights movement, but for human rights for all Canadians. The court said this Supreme Court case was an unequivocal win for sex workers, but there was a problem. The ruling party of the day was Stephen Harper's Conservatives, and Harper was a tough-on-crime, law-and-order prime minister. The Supreme Court decision meant that Harper's government had no choice but to replace those old sex work laws. For a year, we held our breath, and on December the 6th, 2014, the new legislation arrived, Bill C-36, the Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act. The Minister of Justice says his new law will make the buying of sex illegal, not the selling. Uh, we are specifically targeting, as I said, again, for emphasis, Johns, perpetrators, pimps, those who are exploiting vulnerable women. But that's not all the new bill does. It would also make it illegal to profit from prostitution or to advertise sex for sale. But those who won the Supreme Court case last December say the court agreed the law should not make their lives more risky. But the new bill does the same. Canada's new sex work law borrowed from Nordic countries who had enacted end-demand legislation. This Nordic model aimed to stop sex work altogether by criminalizing the clients who buy sex, but not the sex workers themselves. Canada's new law had one major benefit for sex workers. It removed the police's power to lock them up simply for selling sex. And after 2014, there was a drop in the number of sex workers who were charged with crimes related to their jobs. But Bill C-36 also contained provisions that made other things a lot worse. The bill banned advertising sexual services, like in the back pages of a newspaper or on the internet, and it made it a lot harder for sex workers to meet clients away from the street. Bill C-36 also made it illegal to buy sexual services, and in the years following its passage, there was an increase in the number of convictions for buying sex. In effect, Harper figured out an insidious way to sidestep the Bedford decision. Bill C-36 ensured that sex work would still be illegal and dangerous in Canada for years to come. We're going to have to be in dark alleyways. We're going to have to work secretively. This is a gift to sexual predators pretending to be our clients. It definitely reproduced, honestly, pretty much the identical negative impacts that the Supreme Court of Canada ruled as unconstitutional for contravening the security of the person of sex workers. And absolutely, to some extent, it also increased the criminalization as well. And now with an explicit policy that buying sex was 
illegal. Let's talk about this for a second, though, right? Because because to to, to some people, targeting clients might sound like a good thing, right? It's it's like uh, it's like when you say, "Oh, we got to go after the drug dealers," you know, like just from from maybe an outsider's point of view, oh, maybe we should, you know, aren't they bad people? Like, but but regardless of what you think of, um, you know, Johns or dealers or whatever, that has effects on uh, sex workers. On the surface, that could seem like something absolutely if there is um, these violent clients going up and about. But there's a huge need to kind of debunk who who is a client of sex work. There's also a huge need to debunk who is a sex worker because currently this protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act is very gendered. It pretends that all sex workers are women and all clients are these abusive and violent men. But that is really not the case. We know that most clients are just regular people. They're looking for physical contact. Um, They're looking for sexual services. They're looking for companionship. To some extent, the, the intent of this law is to eradicate sex work. And then also sort of as a sub-aim, sometimes they deploy the narrative of increasing the safety of sex workers. But by that, they really mean the safety of sex workers who are willing to exit sex work. Canada's end-demand sex work laws aren't the only thing that pressure sex workers to go on bad dates. Another obvious factor is poverty. It's hard to turn down work, even awful work, when you're living on the edge of homelessness. Another major problem is the toxic drug supply. Today, around 40% of BC's down has benzodiazepines in it. And you can never be too sure how much will be in your dope. The combination of fentanyl and benzos can be really dangerous, causing you to black out and not remember what happened. This has been a real crisis for all drug users, but it can be especially harrowing for sex workers. Did that change things for you very much? Like you were using down, so you probably would have gotten benzo dope sometimes. Oh yeah. It was like, I think it was like a couple of summers ago, and I think, yeah, I think it was like, like, pretty much when COVID hit, but like, a bit after that, I started intentionally using Benzo Down because of uh, Suboxone blocking like regular down. Um, I had a couple of dates, and uh, one of them was like me using in the bathroom, and then in a like a trailer type thing where the bedroom's kind of like right outside and then waking up in the bedroom area with uh him inside me with no condom and i obviously flipped out on him because i was like no and um not having that memory it's like did he drag my body from the bathroom or was i semi like awake but fuck man what a piece of shit yeah I remember flipping out on him and, and being like, why would you think that's okay? And he can't remember. He had some, like, kind of, like, BS excuse, but, like, in a way that, like, he knew what he was doing. Yeah, I think the the unpredictability and, and the blackout piece is just so destabilizing. This is Jen McDermott. She's a PhD student and qualitative researcher at the University of British Columbia. She works closely with Andrea. But we're also hearing from people that like um, people are targeting 
women who are using benzo dope knowing that like potentially what they're being given isn't um, like something that they're used to or isn't something that they're looking for. And so like we've heard lots of stories from people who have in the context of having a benzo blackout been sexually assaulted, um, have been robbed, um, have been raped um, and they have no recourse. There's nothing that you can do in those situations because you don't remember all of the details of what happened. And that's what's so scary. So we did a study looking at the impact of the new sex work laws that purportedly should increase the safety of sex workers where they're more likely to report incidents of violence after the new laws. And what we found that there was no change in sex workers being able to report a violent incident to police. And indeed, we found that sex workers who were racialized and sex workers who were marginalized were the least likely to report violence um, to police. It's been like this for a long time. I remember when Robert Picton was prowling the neighborhood back in the 80s and 90s. Back then, we were facing a different overdose crisis. HIV was spreading like wildfire and people were going missing, mostly indigenous women. I remember the chatter on the street. Don't go to that pig farm, women would warn each other. But police just brushed off the missing persons reports. Oh, she's probably just out partying, they'd say. And that was years before there were any news stories, years before Picton was arrested, before he admitted to murdering 49 people. I heard those warnings. You hear a lot of stuff on the street. You don't always know what to believe. That's still true. Since we started making Crackdown, we've heard a number of times that there's an active serial killer in Vancouver. But this time, I hope people in authority listen and act much sooner. Oh, you can't. Okay. I wanted to know more about what it takes to get from street-based sex work to something a bit safer. And so I decided to talk to someone who'd been at this a little while longer than Jade. Jay Lynn is another participant in Andrea's study. She's in her mid-40s and is quick to laugh. Jay Lynn tells me she's done sex work for 20 years. She started out in a massage parlor, but soon moved to the street. What part of the city did you work in when you were working outside? Um, I worked uh, up at Kingsway and uh, Windsor yeah. for the most part. And yeah, getting treated better than, say, um, clients in the lower downtown can be really rough on the girls and really harsh. There it was more like you get told how beautiful you were and spoiled and stuff. And, and the clients seem like they treat you better and you'd feel better about yourself. So you kind of get misled into thinking that you got more of a glamorous life than you do. At this time, Jalen's life wasn't all that glamorous. She was supporting her and her partner's dope habit with sex work. She remembers that they were living under a different kind of clock. Did they take their shot and know that it would probably only be about six hours before dope sickness would hit? So Jalen had to find a way to make some money fast. 
for a while it was really crazy and really hectic. At one point I was doing, I was working uh, three days straight um, and then I'd crash for like 20 hours and then I'd go another three or four days. How many and, clients would you see in, in the three days that you were working straight? Man, <laughs> it depended how it went. Like sometimes I'd hook up with somebody that I party with for like six, eight hours. Other times I'd see somebody every half hour and have to wait two hours in between um it's it really fluctuates a lot so yeah just having like routine and stuff was not even possible jalen did this kind of hustle for 20 years meeting strangers on the stroll trying to read the vibes and gestures on guard against assault and theft she says her spidey sense would tingle when something was off like when a client said i'm a nice person just a few too many times. So Jaylene decided to transition out of street-based sex work. She knew that this would be a grind and that it would take years. The first step was to get a job at an overdose prevention site, doing support work and reversing overdoses. Jaylene thinks she's reversed 70 to 80 ODs. That is some heroic, life-saving shit, but she's modest about it. She says she's just helping people through a bad day. There was a lot to like about the OPS job, but it paid less than sex work, and the job got harder and harder to hold on to as the drug supply got worse. I was getting benzoed all the time, uh, buying fentanyl through good sources and everything, but they didn't even know that it was cut with benzos, so I was constantly going under, so my boss actually set me up with Safe Supply. Uh, so your boss at the OPS? Yes, yes, right. my boss. And when you, you're getting benzos, you're kind of blacking out and losing time and yeah, that stuff? Yeah, and missing, uh, missing shifts, and like I'm usually very punctual, and they asked me, like, what's going on? You're not giving us a heads up or anything. We're being left without somebody to cover the shift. Um, what's up with you? This isn't you. And I told her, like, I'm trying to, but it's like I keep overdosing and, like, being knocked out for, like, 12 hours. I come to, and the shift's already over. This doesn't work. And she told me, okay, well, there's safe supply. Um, here's a card. Give them a call, and they'll set it up. The safe supply Jalen is talking about is BC's risk mitigation prescribing guidelines. It's hard to access, but if you can wiggle in, you can get hydromorphone, also known as Dilaudid or Dillies. Dillies don't have the kind of kick that Fent does, but they can help with dope sickness. And that's no small thing, because, as Jay Lynn explains, being dope sick can make you take risks you'd never otherwise consider. So many times I've just been made reckless decisions and like got in a car knowing that I was putting my life in danger. But there's times when you're dope sick and you don't have any choice. So you actually go out and you flag that person down or get their attention knowing that it's going to be a horrible experience. But at least it's better than not having any options whatsoever. Can you Absolutely. tell us anything about one of those? Okay, well, um, this person that I used to see that... Um, it was like one of my most desperate dates, but um, I knew that I'd make 60 bucks and he'd take me to his place and I called him peanut butter and toe jam at his whole thing. <laughs> um, 
literally he loved women to lick his feet and he <laughs> would always have like hairy toes and he'd put peanut butter on them and you had to suck his toes that was his fetish and it was my, one of my worst creepiest days <laughs> he was an old man that smelled bad and just the thought of him and his peanut butter and toe jam feet just grossed me right out <laughs> So, <laughs> so once you got the dillies, you could say, yes. no, thank you, Mr. Peanut Butter and Toe Absolutely. Jam. And he keeps spinning around and trying to pick me up. And I just, no, there's no way I'm going back to that. <laughs> the other good thing about dillies is that you could sell them. And Jalen would do that to go buy fentanyl, the drug that she actually wants and needs. All this helped reduce the pressure for immediate cash flow. That ticking dope sickness clock wasn't so ruthless as it used to be. And that meant, gradually, Jalen was able to build up a roster of regulars. I don't see new clients anymore. I see ones that I've known for a few years now, but um, they either text me or they call and it's like they've become like friends in a sense. So it's uh, how you been and everything, quick chit chat, catch up. And, and then they ask me if I got time available and then we just decide whether um, they're coming to my place or I'm going to theirs and there's, it's, uh, an understanding I know that I'm going to get paid what I want and everything. It's already arranged. There's no haggling or anything, which is a lot nicer because that's a big part of at the beginning when you meet people. It's you don't know if you're going to get paid trying to get the money first and everything. Are, are they going to try and take it off you after? It's, yeah. And and now that you are like able to schedule the appointments and everything, does it feel safer oh yeah for sure it's um i'm either in my own home or at their homes i don't i don't even see clients in the car anymore um because i know i know them i know i'm safe i have nothing to worry about there's no concerns barely ever anymore and stuff it's so much better <laughs> it's giving people the opportunity to um make additional income um, it's giving people the freedom, I guess, for lack of a better word, to know that if they don't have time to meet up with their dealer in a day, if um, for some reason they aren't able to get what they need to get through the day, they have this kind of like stowed away um, uh, prescription of dillies oh, you got or a safety whatever. Net. Exactly. But selling your dillies comes with some risk as well. Jalen has to be careful that she doesn't get caught by her doctor, because if she does, the doc will cut her off pretty quick. One of the participants um, who we interviewed, like initially she was prescribed um, pandemic safe supply very early on in the pandemic. And she got like a pretty decent dose of Dilaudid. Later on, she got piss tested and the dilaudid didn't show up in the piss test and then she was um being um penalized for that and what did they do they halved her dose right of course she adapted um and now yeah adapts to that piece in terms of like taking some of the dilaudid to make sure that it does appear in in her pee test and then potentially, you know, 
selling it to other people. Yeah. And I think that that's, this is something that's coming up a lot in the context of the interviews that we're doing is the uncertainty and the control that physicians have over people's lives in this way. And so there's a lot of people asking us questions when COVID is over. I'm saying that kind of in quotes, but what's going to happen to my safe supply? There's so much gray. And I think that it is really causing a lot of harm to people, just that uncertainty. A script for a handful of dillies can be so hard to get. And doctors can just take them away like that. It feels precarious. And governments seem reluctant to allow us to get what we really need in order not to die. Pharmaceutical fent, coke, meth, or heroin. But that handful of dillies, so woefully insufficient in the face of this apocalypse, it can make a real difference in your life. And that's why we fought for it. Because, as small as it may seem, we know that every inch matters in the drug war and the war on sex work. Each incremental gain slows down that clock just a bit. And for people like Jalen, that can make all the difference in the world. Who takes care of the dog? Or did you get that dog more recently? Uh, I just got him a year ago. Um, What's his name? Bodhi. Bodhi. What yeah. kind of dog is it? He is a blue-nosed pitbull. And he's uh, is slightly lacking on hearing. He's just got a bit of hearing in his one ear. Um, he was the living runt of the litter, but he's so sweet. He's so adorable. <laughs> and, and so this means because you can organize your calendar and your days and stuff, it means that you can yeah you can have a dog. Yeah. Like you probably couldn't have had a dog oh, before. There's right? no way that I could have before. Not at all. <laughs> And yeah, it's a really nice change. It's great. It's something that actually makes me happy and smile. I didn't think I'd ever get to that point. <laughs> it just is like it just seemed like for a while I was just like faking it to to like uh, impress guys to make money. <laughs> now it's like actually genuinely laughing and having a good time again. Crackdown is produced on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Our editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Laura Shaver, Raya Jean, and rest in peace, Dave Murray, Greg Frez, and Sharice Kiwaden. This episode was conceptualized, written, and produced by Sam Fenn, Alexander Kim, Alex DeBoer, Lisa Hale, and me, Garth Mullins. A big thanks to Jen McDermott for her research and coordination work. Thanks to Rory Mark, Carrie Porth, and the Pace Society for their guidance. Thanks to Patricia Monty, Barbara Bevington, Crystal Richaud, and Eden Boyer for their consultation work. Special thanks to Jade and Jaylin for making sure we got this story right. Our academic director is Ryan McNeil. 
Academic advising and direction on this episode was provided by Professor Jade Boyd. Sound design by Alexander Kim. Score by James Ash. Crackdown is funded in part by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. If you like what we do, support us at patreon.com crackdownpod. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and keep six.